0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is August second of two thousand and twelve, and our guest tonight is Dr. Janja Lalic. Uh She's an expert on the cults, and she is a professor at uh, Calif- at uh, Chico University in California. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest tonight, Dr. Yanya Lalich. She is the author of Take Back Your Life recovering from cults and abusive relationships she's right here we're going to bring her on yanya how are you doing this evening
0: i'm doing very well
1: well it's great to have you on the show
0: thank you it's good to be here
1: tell us a little bit what is a cult and what distinguishes a cult from a legitimate or a mainstream religion
0: okay Uh, well that's a question i get quite often um uh, for me, a cult has to have a certain kind of structure. Um, it's usually got some kind of charismatic leader, or at least was founded by a charismatic leader. I mean, that person may eventually die, as we all do. Someone else may take over. Um, but there has to be a pretty strong authoritarian figure at the top. Um, and then there's a, a what I call a transcendent belief system, which is... Um, basically an ideology, in a sense an extremist ideology that offers you the answers to everything in the past, present, and future. So there's no no other possible way of looking at the world, no, under, no other interpretations that are valid. And then thirdly, there's uh, what I call systems of influence and control, which is the, the uh, structure that helps keep everything in place once someone becomes a member. So if you look at... Uh, say, a healthy religion, uh, generally you're worshiping some kind of higher principle, right, whether that's God or Muhammad or the trees or Buddha or whatever it might be. Um, And you don't have some living person right in front of you, or you shouldn't have, some living person right in front of you uh, telling you in detail how to live your life and taking control over your life and your life decisions. Uh, So for me, that's one of the main distinctions between a cult and uh, a health religion. And and of course, cults can be uh, formed around any kind of belief. It doesn't have to have a religious belief. Uh,
1: Some some mainstream religions, um, don't uh, the people in charge have a lot of power over their members? Uh, Priests in the Catholic Church, don't they have a lot of power over their members?
0: Yes, they do. Um, And and I think it comes down to whether uh, something really, you know, you're, you're ingrained with the idea that something really horrible is going to happen to you, uh, and you've seen it happen to others who defy that leader or defy the priest. So, yes, there are, certainly the Catholic Church is one of the stricter uh, mainstream religions that has a lot of rules that people are supposed to live by, but there's probably millions and millions and millions of Catholics who don't live by those rules, who still may go to Mass on Sunday. Uh, So, and certainly within certain parishes, um, more cult-like tendencies may take hold if there's a a priest there who gets carried away with his power. I mean, cults are essentially about a power imbalance, and and it can happen anywhere.
1: Well, I think... um... Just things that were going through my head when I was reading your book. Um, it currently, certainly if someone wants to join a convent or a monastic order in the Catholic Church, it takes many, many years. You can't just jump in and do right. it overnight. So there seems to be a lot of systems in place to try and protect people yes. and make sure they really know what they're getting into.
0: Right, exactly. If, if someone's joining at that level and they're committing their life, uh, they have to go through a lot of uh, education before that, questioning. Uh, it's only adults who do that. They don't take young children uh, in the convents or in the monasteries. So it, it, it's a more uh, informed process, whereas sometimes, when often, when you're joining a cult, you really don't even have a clue what the bottom line is. You don't really know what you're joining uh, when you're initially being drawn in. And so many of the things aren't revealed to you,
1: so much later, if at all. Well, um, yeah, you know, a lot. This speaks to me on many levels. I mean, I was raised a, in an evangelical church, in the evangelical free church, which I definitely consider to be a cult today. Uh-huh. And you know, I left that as a teenager. Um, you know, I was taught you know creationism is true, and if you disbelieve in creationism, you know you'll go to hell. And it was a huge uh-huh. uh, huge amount of time spent concentrating on hell and eternal damnation and burning forever this is not That's really right. fun when you're 5 years old you know
0: no right <laughs> so i find go ahead.
1: Go ahead.
0: Go ahead.
1: yeah i find some of these very negative and cultish and you were going to say something so go ahead and speak
0: well, I was going to say, many, many of the uh, fundamentalist churches that have sprung up over the last few decades and that are uh, really rampant in our country right now um, are, often are little cults or sometimes bigger cults. Um, and part of the problem is that many of these new churches don't belong to any kind of denomination. They're non-denominational churches, which means they don't belong to any greater body. That's holding them accountable, whether the pastors or the reverends or the whoever uh, have to go, you know, sit in on large meetings, have regional meetings, um, places where they can be held accountable, or where parishioners can go and make a complaint about someone. So these, these non-denominational uh, fundamentalist churches are, are really a hotbed of this kind of abuse.
1: Yeah, I think that's true and uh, even the more organized one. Uh well the Evangelical Free Church is the one. It's what they call it now. It, when I was uh, born into it it was it was actually split into several smaller things. And I think ours was the Swedish Evangelical back in those days. But uh-huh. even with that uh, with that uh much larger level of organization, it's it's quite a large church now, but mm-hmm. it's it still has this huge uh emphasis on, you know, damnation and hell and burning forever. And, um, you know, I was told, you know, uh, you can't go to college because that's, you know, that's uh, all from the devil. It's all from Satan. You can't get any higher education.
0: Right, right, right. So, I mean, you know, in my opinion, any kind of church that has that amount of restrictions on its members and is focusing on on um, all the negativities, you know, the hell and damnation. I mean, that doesn't seem like a very healthy place to belong to. <laughs> so uh I think you know, I think there are many decent churches around uh that people could find the same kind of solace that they may need um without having to uh exist in that kind of really paranoid environment.
1: Now my experiences uh with the Hare Krishna's we're quite different. I have uh, two good friends, uh, one really close friend that's a member. She's been a member for 30 or 40 years now. And you know I was just you know invited to come for the holy day, you know, dance around the temple. I had no coercion at all to become a member. I know that in the past, uh, there were uh, much more uh, coercive approaches, and there were, there were problems in the past, but it seems like they've uh, done a lot of reform.
0: Yes, well, what what happened with the Krishnas, I mean, the Krishnas were always quite strict in terms of celibacy and having to send the children off to schools uh, called the um, and women being regarded as less beings and, and all of that, kind of, and just basically focusing on, you know, fundraising and selling their books at the airports and all of that. Um, what happened was a number of years ago, I think it was 2005, might have been earlier, uh, there was a lawsuit by the children. Many of the children who had to attend these schools, uh, which were in India, uh, were abused physically and sexually. And so there was a class-action lawsuit against the church. Against, I'm sorry, against the heart Um And the, the lawsuit basically would have bankrupted uh, the organization. And it caused it caused a big split in the Hare Krishna organizations, but some of the old guard wanted to keep everything hush-hush, wanted to you know, just sort of pull in the ranks, and some of the other leaders uh, wanted to be more open and be more transparent and admit to the mistakes and try to have a more democratic organization. Uh, so that caused a lot of reforms uh, within the Hare Krishna And So today I think it is not that's rich as
1: an well. organization, yeah, that's my experience. I mean, it's not something that I would like to join personally. I like to drink alcohol, eat meat, I like a cigar about once a week. uh, these aren't things that I want to give up, but <laughs> i I did not feel anything coercive when I went to visit the temple with my friend, you know, yeah,
0: yeah, and not you know not every group does tries to recruit everybody who comes their way, you know, they probably figured you were a lost cause. <laughs> and since you have, you, know, since you have this friend who's just been your friend for years, I mean, she probably knows very well you're not going to join. And so why bother putting that pressure on you when uh, the is still pretty much focused on young people?
1: Yeah, I don't think they knew anything about me. Uh, but, you know, I just came and danced with them, and then we went home after uh-huh. the holy day was over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, people were nice and friendly, but they didn't, you know, put any pressure on me to join or come back. So I found it was pretty laid back.
0: Yeah, and that's good to hear.
1: Um, I'm going to read something from your book here. It's near the front under What is a Cult? A cult is a group or movement exhibiting great or excessive devotion, dedication to some person, idea, or thing, employing unethical, manipulative, or coercive techniques of persuasion and control. Isolation from former friends, family, debilitation, use of specific methods to heighten suggestibility and subservience, powerful group pre- pressures, information management, suspension of individual a- individuality or critical judgment, promotion of total dependency on the group and fear of leaving it, designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families, or their communities. Um well, there's a lot of things to expand on here. Um, tell me about unethical, manipulative, or coercive techniques of persuasion and control.
0: Okay. Well, uh, a lot of what happens um, in these groups is they they will use basic social psychology, you know, guilt, fear, anger, love, you know, things that we respond to normally. Um, they will use Uh, these same types of emotions against you in the sense that they try to get you off balance. They try to get you to doubt yourself and doubt what you knew before, maybe doubt how your parents really raised you. Um, And they'll try to get you off kilter so that you will uh, eventually see that their interpretation is the correct one. So they'll, different groups will use different ways to do this. They may do it in <clears throat> in group meetings. They may do it in what, what we sometimes call love bombing, or, you know, they're surrounding you with, with people who are being so nice to you. Uh, they, they will tend to separate you from your normal environment so that you don't have your same reality checks. And uh, most groups will assign someone, in a sense, to like be your buddy. kind of a check person who's monitoring you and watching you, and you're supposed to ask that person questions. Um, If you have questions, they generally get turned back on you. So all of this is is a kind of psychological destabilization. And when we're in that state of mind, when we're destabilized, so to speak, when we're off off our normal way of looking at the world, that's an uncomfortable feeling, right? It's what Mm -hmm. we call cognitive dissonance. And so we want to resolve that. And so then there's somebody there offering you this answer. So we grasp at that answer because we don't want to be in that uneasy state of mind. So I I, I consider these uh, techniques, and, you know, there may be forms of sort of uh, not exactly hypnosis, but ways to alter your thinking, you know, hours of meditation, chanting, or whatever it may be. in a sense it's this uh changing you without you really realizing it. And so it's a situation of uninformed consent. You know, we talk about informed consent when we go to the hospital or go to the doctor and sign a form and we see, yeah, this is what we know is going to happen today. Well nobody does that here. So people are going in not really realizing what, what the outcome is going to be. And so in that sense it's it's unethical, it's not fair, it's manipulative. Um and often your session especially in the beginning, you're surrounded by other members of that group who are who are acting as models, who are like showing showing the way to behave. Uh so you'll kind of go along with things you might ordinarily not go along with, but because you're in that group context, you sort of feel you have to. So that's where the peer pressure comes in. So I have kind of a long roundabout answer, but I hope that explained it.
1: Yes. Um well, I told you I was going to ask you about Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw so many of these things going on in AA. I mean, the first step is you must admit you are powerless, and then the mm-hmm. second is you must come to believe that a higher power will restore you to sanity. Mm-hmm. And admitting you are powerless, I'm saying over and over that you're powerless, to me, is just really psychologically damaging.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've certainly had uh, many complaints about AA, and I think even in my book there's a tiny passage where we uh, say, you know, for some people AA has worked. It's been beneficial. But many people do get uh, enmeshed in AA just like any other cult, where they're, uh, they, they, in a sense, become addicted to it. They have to continue doing it. They can't you know, befriend people who aren't part of it. I remember once I was dating someone. I had just been on a second date with this person. This was a number of years ago. And on the second date, uh, she said to me, well, if we're going to continue dating, you have to start going to Al-Anon, Simon an A.A. And I said, no, I don't. know, <laughs> it's <was> like, <laughs> I don't have to do anything. You know? <laughs> that was after I had gotten out of the cult I was in, so I wasn't about people telling me what to do. But there's that that kind of restrict, restriction on the life um, that comes along with AA, and so it, it can be very cult-like.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I have no argument with a person that's going to AA and likes it and finds it beneficial, or someone mm-hmm. that's a member of the Unification Church and likes that and says it's the greatest thing for them, or if they're Hare Krishna, Evangelical, Catholic, Atheist, whatever. I believe you know that's your right to choose if that's what you're mm-hmm. choosing. I'm not going to argue with you. But if you say, um, you know, this is not what I thought it was. It's damaging me. That's when I want to start talking to people about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the problem is what, when you're in those environments, and the longer you're in, the fewer resources you have outside the group. Um, it's very hard to find people to talk to about it, and so you you feel more and more isolated. And, and I think that that's why it becomes so difficult for people to leave these situations. If you, you know, I mean, as if you're violent in for ten and a half years, I no longer had any friends outside the group while I was in. My parents died. I mean, I fought for several years to try to get away, but I, I couldn't figure out where to go or how to get away, and I didn't have a penny of my name, and and you didn't really trust anyone to talk to. If I talked to another person in the group about how unhappy I was, they would have turned me in. Um, and so I think that's the difficulty of uh, people getting so close to these groups, what I call a bounded reality, that they, they don't have those reality checks that we use every day in our lives kind of without even realizing it.
1: Well, tell me a little bit more about that group. That was the Democratic Workers' Party, I think.
0: Yes, yes, it was. It was and, uh, uh, oh, go, go ahead.
1: ahead. Yeah, a lot uh, of people probably don't know too much about that. Uh, it's right. been disbanded now, but tell us about what it was about.
0: It was a political cult uh, that started in 1974. It got started by uh, a group of women who were, had, were in the study group at the time. This was right at the end of the Vietnam War, and a lot of people on the left were trying to figure out what to do, what's our next. That, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so this group, uh, I got recruited right after sort of the founding uh, in the, sort of the first rung of members, and I got recruited through a study group. I thought I was just in a study group with 10 other women, since I was new in town. It was a way to meet people, and, you know, before I knew it, I got told, oh, there's this group, don't want to join, blah, 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 and went on from there, uh, but the idea was, you know, that we were going to create a better society. We were going to get rid of racism. Sexism, and, and since the organization was founded and led by women, that was kind of our claim to how we were different from the other groups on the left, which were very sexist. Women didn't really have any role. And so that was sort of our pitch of recruitment. And even though we had both men and women as members, it was always pretty much 50. 50 uh, that was our big claim, that we were a new kind of American uh it was a communist group, really, although we never said that publicly. Uh, so, we, were, you know, our goal was to make, a, uh, ultimately, to make revolution. In the meantime, we did a lot of, we had a lot of little front groups that worked uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and eventually we moved people to other parts of the country, and we had a publishing house and a print shop, and it was quite established, uh, and pretty well known in the Bay Area, for sure, because we involved ourselves in a lot of uh, political campaigns there.
1: Do you think this was a cult already when you joined it, or you do you dead? think it... Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Hello? I'm still here. Um, hello? Can, hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me?
0: can't hear you.
1: Um, I can hear you fine, but oh, you can't hear okay. me. Okay,
0: I can, I can hear you now.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think uh, you're on your cell phone. You might be losing, yeah. the, you might be having a signal problem. Um, well, go ahead. Do you think this was a cult when you got started? I mean, do you think it changed any while you were a member, or was it already a cult when you got involved?
0: I think the, I think it was, was already a, a, a cult, or it was the, the, the origins of the cult. So the woman who started it, who sort of became the leader of these 13 women, um, had tried to form a similar group. Uh, when she was teaching in Canada, and she was, she was basically a, a, a megalomaniac, a control freak. Um, she wanted to form something uh, that everybody thought she was, you know, God got, or the new Lenin. You know, she saw herself as the new Lenin, and um, the, from very early on, the controls on our lives were very strict in terms of constantly being available. Uh, writing reports on each other all the time, divulging everything about ourselves, very, very harsh criticisms, and so it it was cultic from the beginning for sure. And
1: how did you get out?
0: Oh God, that's a long story. (laughs) Um, Well, I had been trying to figure out a way out and I never could, and toward the end um, all of us, I mean there was kind of a core group of about 110 people. At, At times we had front groups that had maybe a 1,000 people or a couple thousand people. We had something called the Grassroots Alliance, but they weren't party members. So the, the core group was about 120, 130 people who had pretty much been there from, either from the beginning or at least for the last seven years. And so people were very, very, if you don't mind me saying, brainwashed. I mean, people were solidly devoted, dedicated to this thing and had no other life. Um, but what happened was some, some cracks started happening in the structure. Basically, the, the leader had a second in command who pretty much ran everything, and, and they had a kind of a split between them. And different people just started to crack. I mean, we had worked for years with no vacations, seven days a week, 20-hour days. You know, people were exhausted and cracking. And um, at one point, the leader left the country. Uh, to go, She would go on these trips to Europe, and she'd go to Bulgaria. She thought Bulgaria was sort of a new utopia. <laughs> and while she was away, we called everybody together, and we said, look, we have to, you know, both of us in the inner circle, we called together, all the members, and said, we have to tell you this whole thing is a, a, a joke. I mean, not a joke, but we said it's a cult. You know, she's drunk. She, you know, the things that are written in her name, others of us actually wrote. Um, and, we, and the members that first didn't believe us, and we had to keep kind of telling our stories, and so finally everybody believed us. And and so then before she came back, we took a vote to expel her and to dissolve the organization. So it was really kind of a unique uh, happening in, in the world of cults. Uh, we've only seen that a few times, where a group will actually turn on a leader and dissolve the organization
1: yeah that would seem so, rather rare, so
0: we finally
1: had our revolution <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know um well, when I left my church originally, um I talked about this uh, last week or the week before I guess it was the week before um just because i uh I'd been taught all these things about creationism, and I had read all these explanations of how Darwin's evolution was impossible. So I went to the high school library and checked out a copy of The Origin of the Species because I was going to disprove all of Darwin's stuff. And, of course, mm-hmm. everything I'd been told was false, and Darwin right. didn't say any of the things I'd, told he, I'd been told he said. Right. Yeah, I didn't last... I didn't last very long in AA at all, um, only a few months. Um, It was exactly the same as the church I was brought up in. It was so similar, and it was so uh, rigid and authoritarian and, you know, Say you are powerless, uh accept a higher power, make the group your God and I so said like AA's not God. Why can't I make the communist party God? And
0: then you know
1: everybody'd be really upset. You can't talk about politics in here. Well, you said anything could be my higher power. Yeah, but you know, I was always being told, you know, shut up and you know, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your in your mouth and you know and this
0: So we and did you go into AA after you had already left that church?
1: Oh many many years after I've yeah. been an atheist so, so for about
0: think, Uh-huh. Because I've been atheist for about 30 years. Do you think the experience in the church kind of helped you see through the AA stuff?
1: Yeah, I think that's why I got out very quickly. Um, you know, I only lasted, you know, six months or something like that. I know some friends of mine that have left AA have you know, they were there for years or decades, you know, and they have a horrible time getting this programming out of their head that you know that uh you know, your thinking is stinking, are you um what did they say? No one is too dumb to get the AA program, but a lot of people are too smart to get it. And your own best thinking got you in this situation. And it's a complete attack on your intellectual power. It's it's just terrible. And then one thing that's chanted all the time is, I can't, but we can, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, it's total, you know, subjugation to the group. And it's just, Mm you know, I mean... You know, some people manage to actually, you know, use it in a positive manner and take that with a grain of salt, I think. Um, right. You know, some of my good friends who work in needle exchange programs, uh, they're, they are members of N.A., but when they go to uh, hand out clean needles, you know, that's separate, and they don't talk about N.A. They say, you know, how many needles do you need?
0: Right, right.
1: And they can separate it. Um, right. I certainly couldn't. It was just, uh, you know, for me, uh, well, I – as I've told, as I've said many times, I never drank as much in my life as when I was being told that I was powerless and that alcohol was powerful, and I only got things under control after I left AA. So that for me, the programming was, well, it's kind of set up to. It, It's kind of set up in a way that you will drink yourself to death if you leave the group. I mean, that's what you're always told. If you leave the group, you'll drink and die. And lots of people, as soon as they try to leave, the first thing they do is they drink, they get in their car, they drive, you know, they have an accident. Maybe they kill somebody. Maybe they kill themselves. Maybe they total their car. But, you know, horrible things happen. People are set up to actually do horrible things when they leave.
0: Right. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy,
1: right? And, you know... (laughs) That's one reason why I'm not trying to get people to leave because I know what happens. You know, when people do leave, they they have horrible consequences because they've been set up to have these consequences.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's true in almost every cult. I mean, we were told if we left, you know, we'd die in the street, dirty communists that no one would ever befriend us, that we couldn't ever tell any of these people what we'd done, and who would hire us. And you know, so it was when when the group actually ended and we all got out. I mean, everybody was pretty. I mean, even though we were elated, it was like getting out of prison, people were still pretty terrified. I know I was. I I didn't know how to do job interviews. I didn't know what kind of clothes to wear. I I thought people from the party were going to come and get me, even though there was no party. I mean, you know, these things stay with you a long time. Um, I guess that's why I wrote my book, you know, to, like, help people see. There's a lot of us who've been through this, and there really is light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, because I know from my some of my friends that were there for years and they were taught, you know, if you're going to get a new job, you have to ask your sponsor first. If you're going to get married, uh-huh. you have to ask your sponsor first. You know, everything it right. ask your sponsor, ask your sponsor. You're not in charge of your own life. Right. And when there's no more sponsor, you know, it's like people are lost.
0: Right, exactly, exactly. And it takes a lot of hard work, to to gain back the self-esteem and the self-confidence that that got damaged uh, during that experience.
1: So how are some ways that people can get their life back together, uh, you know, after they've left?
0: Well, I think it depends on the experience, but I know for a lot of people, uh, certainly talking with other people who've been through either the same experience or a similar experience, like either a support group or something where, where you can kind of share stories and, Find out what worked for this person and that person, and you know, so that's sometimes helpful. Writing is often very helpful. Just writing, re- kind of, it's kind of a release for all the pent-up anger and frustration. And so, often writing is a good release. I think studying, you know, or learning about how cults and these kinds of groups operate. I mean, what I do when I work with people is I give them either my bounded choice framework, uh, which I talk about in the book, or I use Robert Lifton's. Thought Reform Framework, and I ask people to just take that framework and and fill it in with how it worked in their group. And once people see, once they can kind of see the enormity of the pressures that they were under, the influence and control system, um, it kind of takes away some of that shame, like, oh, my God, why did I stay or how did I do it or why did I do it? Because, you know, you just have to have been a robot not to succumb to that. So anything you can do to um, sort of demystify the experience, demystify the leader, um, you know, it was some, for some people, they're, they were in a group where the leader maybe has a completely fabricated background. So doing some research and finding out, like, who that person really is and just uh, all of those kinds of things are helpful. And then for particular things, like people have, you know, have triggers, like things that remind them of something, and, and those can be really freaky and scary, and so recognizing, keeping track of that and knowing what your triggers are so when they happen you know how to deal with them or you can avoid situations where you only get triggered. Um, All of those kinds of things are are very helpful.
1: Uh, One more thing I want to look at before we go, um, and that's the idea of cults looking for people who are vulnerable. Do you find that these are the people that get recruited?
0: Well, I I guess I would say we're all vulnerable at many points during our life. So mm-hmm. you have to be you have to be vulnerable in the sense of being open, being open to trying something. So but vulnerable isn't isn't necessarily a negative characteristic. I mean you can be vulnerable because it's raining outside, or you can be vulnerable because your dog just died, or you just got divorced, or you just moved to a new town, or any any number of things like that make us so called vulnerable because we're not like totally situated in our lives at that moment. It doesn't mean we're mentally unstable or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And also, most people get recruited, uh, from the research that's been done, I think it's 67%, uh, get recruited by a friend, a family member, or a co-worker. So initially, you're getting invited to this thing by somebody you know. And, and you might not want to go, but you put it off, and then eventually you say, okay, I'll go because you want Uncle Charlie to stop bunting you, whatever, you know. And so it's not so much anymore the stranger-on-the-street kind of recruitment that we saw back in the 50s and 70s with the unification church and the Christians and all of that. I mean, the, the recruitment's much more sophisticated. Today, and it happens through mm-hmm. social networks. And so that, it's also easier to get drawn in that way. Um, but I don't think that, you know, weak, vulnerable people are who get recruited in the pulse. Anybody who gets recruited
1: at the right time. Yeah, I didn't mean to imply that uh, it was weak people, but people who are having vulnerable moments, um, exactly. especially when you're talking about the earlier recruitments of uh, the 60s and 70s, you know, people would be mm-hmm. running away from home. Of course,
0: exactly. you're extremely
1: vulnerable at that point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. And it's very easy yeah. for well, I wanted to pick you up, yeah.
0: Or you're going off to college. I mean, I have we have cults on my campus, and they there's one cult that um, uh, in two weeks, when the freshmen come to move into the dorm, they send all their people there to help move them into the dorm. So here are these nice girls and boys, you know, as you're saying goodbye to mom and dad who are helping you move into the dorm, and then they invite you to a dinner that night, and, of course, it's your first time away from home or whatever, so boom. Um, it's a very
1: successful uh, recruitment campaign, and that's another point where I saw Alcoholics Anonymous being uh, being cult-like because they say you have to hit bottom. Well, this is a point where extremely mm-hmm. vulnerable, and you know when you hit bottom, then you're amenable to joining the group. But when we look at people changing their drinking habits. Um well the majority of people who are addicted to alcohol quit on their own eventually they do, they quit without treatment without aa um mm-hmm. and it doesn't take a moment of vulnerability necessary you don't have to hit bottom you have to hit a point of decision but sometimes yeah. decision is not is not a huge tragedy when i quit my huge cigarette smoking habit after you know 35 years um it was because my adopted nephew said, you know, you you have to quit before you die. He's like five years old. <laughs> I don't want you to die. So you have to quit before you die. And I said, okay, I promise. When you start first grade, I will be starting my first year of my school program, and okay, I'll uh, quit then. And I stuck. I stuck to that, yeah. But that was my moment of decision. It was not a moment of, you know, crashing and burning or getting diagnosis of lung right. cancer, some damn thing. It was... But vulnerability seems really important to when people are going to turn their life and will over to the AA organization. They seem to really want people to be hitting bottom.
0: Right. Well, and that's that's what I was talking about before in terms of the the cults who will try to destabilize you. I mean, at that point, you are vulnerable and you're reaching out for something. So it's very similar to that. I mean, when you're hitting bottom, you're going to be desperate, and if you think that's
1: the answer, you're going to match on to it. Mm-hmm. And then if I would be questioning things in AA meetings, you know, people would say, you haven't hit bottom yet. You need to go out and, quote, unquote, do more research. That means drink more alcohol. You need to suffer right. more. Then you'll come back crawling on your knees. Mm-hmm. Uh the other, the other point, um, uh, which goes back to what you're talking about, in many cults, people get recruited by friends. Now they're recruited by by therapists. You know, you go to oh, a therapist, yeah. to say, you know, I'm drinking too much. I'm terribly depressed. I know I'm drinking too much because I'm depressed. And it's like, I, you have to go to AA. I won't treat you before you you, you stop drinking and go to AA. And you say. I can't. Yes. You know, I, you could be me and say, I've been there and I drank more than I ever did in my life. They're a cult, I can't stand it, and they make me wanna drink. And I, oh no, your feelings are totally invalid. Okay. I was told this many times by therapists. Anything that I thought was invalid until I became a good AA member and stopped drinking completely, you know, anything okay. I said was invalid. And okay. this is- I mean, it's it's terrible. I mean, even if you're trying to leave AA and you go to therapists and say, you know, they're making me crazy. And they say, oh, yeah, but you're an alcoholic. You have to go to AA. Yeah. You're not ready to
0: leave yet. Right.
1: <laughs> oh, you're never ready no. to leave. That's a lifelong yeah. commitment. If you ever leave, you'll right. die. So that's the other thing, you know. When people recover on their own from addictions, what they do, uh, I mean, the first year is hard. After the first year, though, people establish a new life. And after a couple of years, they have a whole different life. They're not even thinking about the addiction anymore. It's past. It's gone. It's over.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, absolutely. Uh, the other, the, uh, Another population that I work with are um, people who were sent to these really rigid uh, residential rehab centers and boot camps and things like that. And oh, yeah. And, and those are awful, I mean, because they're mostly adolescents when they're sent. And so they, they are at a very vulnerable stage of their life. They're, you know, that's the time of your life when you're supposed to be figuring things out and then you're in these really horrific structures that are extremely abusive and teaching you that you're a complete addict, you're a complete, you know, loser. Um, some of them are physically abusive. It's really, really remarkable that so many of these programs still exist.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, In the 1990s, I think, basically, laws were passed against sending adults to these institutions, and uh, they had to reform these ones that used to make the guy wear the diaper for a month and call him a baby because he wanted his bottle, make him wear a dress because he said hello to a woman. Uh, These these, uh, procedures were outlawed for adults. But right. they're still being used for children because children don't have rights. Their parents can exactly. do whatever they want. And a lot of them, you know, they're out, out of the country now. So, oh, yes, don't,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, don't ship your kids to a rehab that's somewhere in the Philippines, ever. Don't ship your kids to a rehab where you can't see them, at least weekly, you know.
0: Right, right. And, or you're not allowed to talk to them, or even talk to them on the phone, I mean. Yeah, there are the parents need a lot of education about this. I mean, there needs to be a real campaign. To, because, again, it's therapists, it's these educational consultants. Um, these are the people who are telling the parents, oh, you should send your kids to such and such a place. Yeah, judges, we did, you
1: know. We did a show on this a few months back um, with survivors of Straight Inc., which was oh, one yeah. of the... Yeah, we the, the survivors of Straight Inc are now, they they have formed their own organization, and they exactly. are definitely trying to inform people about this, so they were on our show to tell us, you know, about some oh, of these great. terrible things, yeah, the, you know, there's one recently that was in the news where they were uh, locking the kids, in, in Mexico, they were locking the kids in dog cages and leaving them out to bake in the sun.
0: Uh, yeah, and there's that place in the Dominican Republic, and- and then there was the place, I think it was in New York, wasn't it, where they were giving electric shock, like 25 electric shocks. To the oh, yeah,
1: there. yeah. I saw that. The Rothenberg,
0: um, the Rothenberg Center or something like that. It? Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really horrendous. It's happening right under our eyes. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention.
1: Yeah, these things are, well, <laughs> these are the things that we're telling people yeah, on our show not to do. <laughs>
0: You know,
1: good. That's good. We're trying to get people, you know, educated about some of the rational things. There's cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy. um, You know, there's dialectical behavioral therapy. There's harm reduction programs. There's clean needles if you're not ready to quit. There's other forms of harm reduction to keep you safe until you're ready to make the change in your habits. And when you are ready, there are ways, you know, to help you make the change, there's SMART Recovery. You know, people in SMART are often there for a year and graduate and get... They get a life. They get out. It's not forever.
0: Right, right. Yeah. <coughs> Can you hear that? Yeah. Well,
1: actually, we're about out of time. So... Okay. um, it's it's time to close the show. Anyway, so I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Yanya. Well,
0: thank you, Kim. Thank you. I enjoyed the discussion.
1: It was very good. And everyone, come back next week when our guest will be Karen Walat, who will be talking about uh, we'll be talking about attachment theory and its application to addiction. So thank you, everyone, and good night.